tricky thing. Go back to Matthew chapter 12, and we are going to press on. I was watching a movie last night I've seen many times, and um, within it there's a priest that loses his faith, but uh, the priest was being asked by other people who have recognized that he's lost his faith. They, they were struggling with the circumstances of their day and they were wanting absolution or they were wanting encouragement from this priest and he just had no encouragement to give because he'd lost his faith and it was because of a chain of events. But I was just in there thinking, what's the worst thing that you've done? What if, what if you had to depend on a person to give you that freedom? Like, you, you couldn't get to... You can die and feel like you were going to be right with God unless this priest absolved you of some kind of sin. In the particular movie, I mean, the idea is that there was one or two things that would have damned you to hell. And I'm thinking, there's a lot of things that damn you to hell. Not just one. Is it just one sin that's bad enough that that's it? Or is it any little sin that's bad enough that that's it? And how do you know... If you're facing that judgment or not, is there an unpardonable sin? We talked about this before a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to get the rest of it today. There's a website out there. I wouldn't encourage you to search for it because God knows what you'll find. Um, but there's a website out there where people can go on and video themselves. There used to be. I don't know. I haven't checked lately. People can go on and video themselves blaspheming the Holy Spirit, like, and they do. There's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. They go on there intentionally saying, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, like, apparently mocking the idea of unpardonable sin. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation, right? Old has passed away, yes? You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the way it is. But is there forgiveness any other way? No. No. So either you are or you aren't. So let's pick up from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 12, verse 23. The people are amazed and they say at this miracle that Jesus has done, can this be the son of David? This is not a rhetorical question. They're asking their leaders, the Pharisees. Pharisees or these religious leaders, they have a choice. They can respond to this question a couple of ways. These miracles have not been done before. They've been anticipated by the Messiah. So they're asking now, is, this, is Jesus the Messiah? If these Pharisees affirm the miracles, then they affirm Jesus. If they condemn Jesus, they got to explain the miracles. In verse 14, it says they had already condemned him because they were conspiring against him to destroy him. So now their explanation of the miracles is in verse 24. They say it's only by Beelzebub, which it means Lord of Flies or Lord of Dung. It's a reference to basically the devil, the prince of demons or Satan, that this man cast out demons. This is not the first time they suggested this. Back in chapter 9, we've already talked about it. You don't have to go back to it. But back in chapter 9 and verse 33, he had cast a demon out of a mute person. And the crowds marveled and they said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Same kind of language like, uh-oh, something different is being done. 
and the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So twice they've played this card. I mentioned before there's rabbinic commentary that even says that, that Jesus of Nazareth practiced sorcery, led Israel astray. I'm talking about modern commentary. The Babylonian Talmud talks about a Jew who brought witchcraft from Egypt to Israel, referencing Joseph, Jesus' father, and calling Mary an adulteress. So, I can tell you with certainty, there is an unpardonable sin. And that unpardonable sin is denying Christ's identity. Denying Jesus' claim to authority. Denying who he is. Denying that his authority comes from God. Denying that the power within Christ is the Holy Spirit of God. In this case, they're calling it Satan. Literally. Uh, Verse 25. So let's go on. He says, uh, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom. Notice the topic. Not not specifically the gospel, not specifically salvation. The kingdom. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Mentioned this before, but. This right here makes pretty clear that Satan has a kingdom as well. He has a rule. He has a hierarchy. He's a king, if you want to see it that way. I believe, and I can qualify this with Scripture, but I won't take the time to now. I've mentioned it before. I believe that Satan does not believe himself to be defeated, as so often gets preached. He is defeated, but I don't think he believes that. I think he believes he is still in an engagement that he can win. And I don't think his only goal is just to drag us down with him. I, don't, I think that's a pretty pitiful goal if that's the case. I think if God is eternal and Satan is eternal, and they are, he can't kill them. You know, so how do you defeat him? Well, you make God to be a liar. If you can make God a liar, if you can make Jesus a liar, and, Jesus, and Satan is the father of lies, he has the victory. And I think that's what he's still trying to do. But either way, the context here in Jesus' discussion is his kingdom versus the kingdom of Satan. And he's saying, guys, this doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out. If, you're, if I'm casting Satan out, what sense does it make that I'm Satan? You know what I mean? He's he's trying to make it pretty clear. And then he says, verse 27, If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? What's he saying there? He's saying, if you're telling me that I'm casting demons out by the power of the devil, then what power are your exorcists, your, your guys using? Are they... You think they got God's power? Well, how do you know they have God's power and not the devil's power if you're judging that I have the devil's power because I cast out... See what he's saying? He's like, you guys can't play both standards. And he says, therefore, they'll be your judges. What he means by that is they'll be the evidence against you. If they're casting out demons by God, then they're going to be the evidence against you. Verse 29, 28, I'm sorry. But here is the key question. In understanding all of this, this is the key question. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then what? The kingdom of God has come upon you. So there's the test. Real simple. There's the test. 
It's not, not directly about salvation and the gospel. I know it's interrelated, but not directly that. What he's saying is, if, it's, if it is the Spirit of God that empowers me to cast out the enemy, then the kingdom of God is among you, is here. The king, me, I'm here. Verse 29 attaches to 28. Or, so he's clarifying, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what he's saying here is the evidence that he is the king and that the kingdom empowered by the Holy Spirit is there is that King Satan is bound and he is being plundered. These spirits of King Satan are being cast out. You see what he's saying? He's saying his kingdom as king, Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, has entered the kingdom of Satan, bound the king, Satan, and is now plundering or stealing. In a sense, he's casting his spirits out. He's showing that Jesus not only who he claims to be, he's saying rather than using Satan's power, he's stronger than Satan. That's what he's trying to say. He's not just using Satan's power, he's stronger than Satan. Some say this verse 29 says that Satan is bound or that we can bind him. But that's not supported by Scripture. I don't believe. I know we can resist him. James 4, 7 says resist the devil and he must flee. But it first says what? Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he must flee. But it says resist him, not bind him. Vody Bauckham said this. It's pretty good. He said, have you ever been in a church where they bind the devil? I just want to go up to them and say, do the rest of the churches around here know that y'all got him this week? Because, because if you can bind him, I'm just going to go ahead and recommend you keep him that way. You know, that's pretty good. Uh, the point Jesus is making here is for him to bring his kingdom. He must be superior. His ability to plunder the kingdom is uh Evidence that he is superior. But it uses the word bind. That's temporary. That's a temporary word. He's not saying jailed, tortured, imprisoned, destroyed, murdered, killed. He's saying bind. It's It's a temporary. And plunder means to steal. That's not a conquering term. That's a sneaky term. I think of pirates when I think of plunder. You know what I mean? They sneak in, steal, and sneak out. That's not like a conquering kingdom in a sense. He's using weird words, bound and stealing. And it's implying that he's not establishing anything yet, but he's providing evidence that he's completely able to if they accept it. If they accept him as king, he is, the, the kingdom is here, it's among you, there is evidence clear to support this. And the best evidence of all is that the strong man, the king of this world, is bound at the moment and I am taking from him. That's the best evidence. But instead of accepting it, they not only reject it, they accredit his ability to do it to the very one he's stealing from. So, today... The church does continue by the power of the Holy Spirit to plunder. And Satan is bound at times by the Holy Spirit when somebody's eyes are opened, when they once were blind, and their hearts are convicted and called to repentance. 
And in a future day, he will return to establish his kingdom on earth, and he will ultimately destroy the devil in hell. But at this point in time, it's something different. And let me just give you some evidence to why, why I say what I do, biblically speaking, that we know Satan's not bound because of a bunch of reasons. One, persecution still comes. You know what I mean? The enemy's real. The threat is real. I'll just give you verses. You don't have to turn to any of these. Many of them you probably know. I'll just give you some. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Demanded. And Jesus didn't say, but he's damned to hell, tied up, bound, so don't worry about it. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Which means you're going to go through. And how can Satan demand anything? Uh, John fourteen thirty, Jesus said, I will not, no longer talk with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. And he has no claim on me, he goes on, but he calls him the ruler of this world. 1 Peter 5, 8, most of you probably know this one, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, what? Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, which means he is clearly unbound if he's seeking to devour. Now, he says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. So people are still suffering at the hands of the devil in, in this context, which means he's not bound up if you see it that way. First Timothy 3, 6, he's talking about, uh, Paul is talking to Timothy about the rules for a uh, overseer or an elder, and he says the elder, the overseer, in verse 6, must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If the devil is able to lay out snares, he's not bound. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins on which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He's now at work, not bound. Ephesians six eleven, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? Resist what? You know? The schemes of the devil. Which means he's not bound. He's scheming. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Here's the kingdom. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this, over this present, now, right now, darkness. Against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That is either a bunch of imagination, or there are spiritual forces that are quite unbound, that are structured like a kingdom and actively involved in this present darkness that we're in. And we wrestle with it. Second Timothy 2.26, referring to the lost, that the lost may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. One more, Revelation 2.10, Jesus speaking to a church, says, Do not fear what you, church, are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you'll have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I, I mean, there's no reason to keep going. Those are all after 
Jesus making that statement. So when Jesus is talking about the devil being bound back here in Matthew 12, he's talking about, as I understand it, at that moment. He's talking about his ability to conquer his kingdom or, or to enter his kingdom, bind him and display his power as king even in that moment, I think is where he's going. Look at verse 30, Matthew 12. He says, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That's pretty self-explanatory. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So, before we go any further, if there is an unforgivable sin, it's that one. It says blasphemy against the Spirit. Because, he says, every sin, including blasphemy, will be forgiven. God will grant forgiveness. He didn't qualify how, when, or why. He just says it will be forgiven, but that one will not. All right, now hold on. He says, verse 32, Whoever speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, some see this relating to salvation. Christians and non-Christians here. I'll give you uh, MacArthur. He says this. Someone never exposed to Christ's divine power and presence might reject him in ignorance and be forgiven later, assuming that unbelief gives way to genuine repentance. Even a Pharisee such as Saul of Tarsus could be forgiven for speaking against the Son of Man or persecuting his followers because his unbelief stemmed from ignorance. The example he's using is that Saul attacked Jesus even by name even by name, in ignorance. But he was forgiven of that because he later repented when he became aware of who Jesus was. Now, hold on. He, I'm reading what he says. He says, But those who know Jesus' claims are true and reject him anyway sin against the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who testifies of Christ and makes his truth known to us. No forgiveness was possible for these Pharisees who witnessed his miracles firsthand, knew the truth of his claims, and still blasphemed the Holy Spirit because they'd already rejected the fullest possible revelation. What he's getting at is to reject Jesus may be something you later turn away from because ultimately we all start by rejecting Jesus. You realize that? Like we all start there. That's why you're either for him or against him. Nobody's neutral. You, you all start against him. That's what Paul said. We were all enemies of Christ. While we were yet enemies, he loved us. While we were yet sinners slash enemies, he loved us. We were saved by grace because he first loved us. So we all started out in that place. And he's revealed to us by the Father through the Holy Spirit. John 6 lays that out pretty well. The Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, draws us to him. But to learn of who Jesus is and then attribute the work of the Holy Spirit that's given by the Father to the devil is to reject the only one God. You know what I mean? Jesus, the Spirit, the Father, they're one. To, to, to have a rejection of that is to reject Him. And I agree that in principle. I do agree with all of that in principle. But I think... What we're seeing here again is not in relation to salvation of believers across all time, but it's in relation to the offer of the kingdom 
to that generation. I believe this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is more attested to that generation. It is an event in time. I'll tell you why I think that, okay? Um, let me give you, Fruchtenbaum says this, That generation had committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The unpardonable sin was not an individual sin, but a national sin. It was committed by that generation of Israel uh, in Jesus' time. The content and definition of the unpardonable sin is the national rejection of the Messiahship of Jesus by Israel while he was physically present on the basis that he was demon-possessed. The sin was unpardonable and judgment was set. The judgment came in the year A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. It was a national sin committed by the generation of Jesus' day, and for that generation the sin was unpardonable. From this point on, a special emphasis is placed on this generation in the Gospels, for it was guilty of a very unique sin. At this point, his offer of the messianic kingdom is rescinded. Okay? I'll, I'll build on that, but look at verse 33. He says this to the Pharisees. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree... Look what he's saying here. Make the tree. Or make the tree bad and its fruits bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? That's a heck of a statement. You never want to hear the Lord say that one to you. How can you speak good when you are evil? Not do evil, you are evil. Why, what does he mean you are? Well, for out of the abundance of the heart, what? Mouth speaks. So it isn't your words, it's what's in you. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Or you could say, by your confession a better way to put it. Be careful how loose you are with your words. This is not saying control your tongue, although there's a good principle there. James talks about that quite a bit. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is these careless words you're using when you're confessing who I am. You're real quick to spit out that I'm empowered by the devil. Careful what you say when you say that. He's talking about what your words say about the one who's going to judge you on that day. And here again, you know, the Pharisees are leading the people. Their judgment was evil. It came from an evil heart. And the result is the whole tree, the nation, is being deemed evil here. And I, I don't think the tree there that he's referring to is a person individually. What he's talking about, again, is this generation, these people who have turned to say, is this the Messiah? Can this be the Messiah? They're asking them. And the leaders who are full of evil are saying, no, he's coming from the devil. He's coming from the devil and he's saying that you make you either confess who I am and you make the tree this people good or you confess evil and you make them evil. And they're known by the fruit and the fruit's pretty evil. Fruit and bomb goes on to say this is a national sin, not an individual one. Even for individual members of that generation, it was possible to escape the judgment for this unpardonable sin by repenting or changing their mind about Jesus, no individual could commit this sin today for two reasons. First, it was not an individual sin to begin with. And second, all sins are forgivable to that individual who will come to God through Jesus the Messiah. 
but for the nation as a nation, it was unpardonable. There is a special emphasis in the Gospels on the guilt of this generation. The Messiah is not now physically and visibly present with any nation, offering himself as that nation's Messiah. This was unique to his relationship to Israel and to no other. The offer of the kingdom was rescinded, and they have lost out on seeing the kingdom established in their day. Instead, it will be reoffered to a later generation that will accept it. But that generation was under a special divine judgment, the physical judgment of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple fulfilled in A.D. 70. I asked at the beginning of all this, what's the worst thing you've ever done? You know, is it enough to damn you to hell? Well, every careless word you speak is enough to damn you to hell. The question is, what's your confession? Puritans had a good understanding of this. I love this. I'm going to read it, but I love this. It says, um, it's, it's a poem or a prayer. It's a prayer, actually. It says, oh, and it's Puritan, so it's old English here. But it says, oh, God of grace. You have imputed my sin to my substitute and have imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with the bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I'm still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitent tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of my sins. My receiving the Spirit is trunctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring cover, to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of clothes. For you always justify the ungodly. I'm always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and you're always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never to lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. That's an awesome prayer. I know it's a lot to process just hearing it read, but it's from the Valley of Vision. You can look it up. It's awesome. Put it bluntly in a statement, there's enough sin in our tears of repentance to condemn us to hell forever. It's one way they put it. But our relationship with Jesus Christ alone and the work that he did and the power of the Holy Spirit that seals us, covers us from that sin. That alone is our confession. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. This is one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, these clowns. I want to see a sign. Good grief, man. You know what I'm saying? How many signs has he done up to this point? You know, now they're going right back on the offensive. He just told them, if I cast out demons by a demon, then Satan's divided. I'm stronger than he. That's how I cast them out. Well, then show us something. <laughs> He's had it. 
This is the end of it. This is actually a terribly sad moment in the Gospels. Mark, Matthew 12 is a turning point in the Gospels, and it, it's, terribly, it's a terribly sad moment. He has displayed who he is now over and over and over and over and over, and now everything's going to change. Verse 39. But he answered them. Show's over. And the evil and adulterous, watch how many times he says generate, talk, refers to this generation. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be there, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he referring to there? What's he referring to going to happen to him? Going to die. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, this generation. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Talking about Nineveh repented when Jonah came, but he's saying, I've done all these, all Jonah did was went and preached, and they repented. I've done all these miracles, and, and you're not. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, this generation. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. From now on, Jesus' miracles are strict acts of mercy and teaching his disciples, prepping them for what they're going to do. He's not trying to prove anything anymore. In fact, he's going to start hiding truth. We'll talk about this coming up. But parables are hiding truth. So he's going to begin to start addressing them personally and hiding truth. The only sign that Jesus is still the Messiah that they're going to have after this is his death and resurrection. That's it. And the rest of it's done. And it's funny that he started all this casting a demon out of an individual, and now he's going to conclude with an illustration about a demon-possessed nation. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. So once again, I've heard this preached about individual people. He's not talking about an individual person. He's talking about this generation, that generation in time. He's using an individual as an illustration, but he's likening that to this generation. Think of what this generation has experienced, this generation that he's there with. John the Baptist, all that he did to turn that generation to, the, to repentance, baptizing, preparing the way for the Messiah, the Messiah is there. Of all the generations in all the history of time or time to come, they're the ones that actually have the Messiah there, Jesus himself. He defeats the temptations of Satan. He does miracle after miracle, all kinds of miracles, even casting out thousands of demons. The absolute power and and all of it is done in Israel with that group of people. 
to those people with that generation, but they have attributed all of that to the devil himself. And in so doing, they reject the Holy Spirit who cleaned the house and opened it to the devil himself. Now, there is a principle there that does relate to us. I mean, we can make the house real clean on the outside. We can make, it, we can make ourselves look real good on the outside. We can say all the right words. We can do all we want to do. But if the Holy Spirit does not indwell and fill you, there's no guarantee that you didn't just clean yourself up for the devil. One more quote here. It says, when, the, when that generation began, it was under Roman domination and had to pay annual tribute to Rome. Nevertheless, it did have a national identity. It was Israel. It had a form of government in the Sanhedrin, which was its own government. Jerusalem stood in all its glory, and the religious worship system in the temple was intact. Later, as a result of the rejection and the judgment in the year A.D. 70, same generation, the national entity of Israel ceased to exist. In place of bondage, they were completely dispersed and destroyed by the Roman armies. The temple, the center of religious Judaism, was completely destroyed so that not one stone stood upon another. And eventually, the Jews were dispersed all over the whole world. Indeed, the last state of that generation became worse than the first. Again, up to this point, Jesus has not been ignoring the Gentiles, okay? But at this point, his primary focus goes from the lost sheep of Israel to equipping his disciples to the mission to go to the ends of the earth. And particularly, his kingdom being rejected by Israel is now pushing it to the ends of the earth instead. Um, later, we'll come to this, Jesus outright says it. Matthew 21, verse 43, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. There's a lot of debate about this, depending on what your end times theology is. I'm not going to fight all that now, but we can talk about it later. I don't believe this means the church. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. No question about who that is. He's talking about the religious leaders because verse 45 says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And they're right. So he's talking about, when he talks about the you, he's talking about you, this generation, led by you, Pharisees. The kingdom of God has been extended to you. You have clearly rejected it. Therefore, it's taken to you from you and it will be given to a people who produces fruits. The word people there does translate Gentiles sometimes, but I think he's talking about, if it's the word ethne, I think he's talking more about an ethnic group. I think he's talking about a future generation of Israel when he will come and establish it. We can talk about that some other time. But the point I want you to see right now is that he makes clear that this kingdom offer is rescinded to that generation. It's no longer offered to them in that sense. Go to, you can let go of that. We're going to finish here. Go to Romans. I, I hinted at this earlier, and I'm just going to skim it really fast because we don't have time to do it in great detail, and we're studying Matthew anyway, not Romans. But Paul gives a pretty good outline of how he sees the effects of this, what we call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if it is just addressing the nation, as I believe it is. Paul says this, Romans 9, I'm going to skim, uh, so just jump with me. If, if I jump over something and you're like, but wait, well, we don't have time for it. I'm, I'm following a thread of thought here. 
We can talk about it later, but <laughs> not right this second. Romans 9, verse 3. Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is an insane statement. I can't, it blows my mind to hear, to read that and know he means it. Verse 4. They are Israelites. Now remember, this is decades after Jesus has died and ascended, uh, raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. Decades later, okay? They are presently Israelites. And to them, presently, belong. Present tense. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, and the promises. Promises of the kingdom. They, they belong to Israel presently, decades after Jesus, okay? Verse 5, to them belong presently the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So he talks about this remnant. And I've heard all kinds of people say a, the remnant is, is believers. Not Here it's not. It's, an, it's a remnant of Israel. It means that the nation as a whole has been, as Paul is saying, what Jesus said, cut off in a sense, but not entirely. There are believers. There is a remnant. That generation rejected it. That generation was brought the wrath of God upon them. The Jews were scattered, but there is a remnant of Jews because he's made a promise to them that he plans to keep, to extend them the kingdom. I believe that. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness. That they have a zeal for God. They're, boy, they are passionate for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they're they passionate for Him, but they just don't know Him. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, he's saying that they're trying to keep the law and do it their own way. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 21, but of Israel... God says, all day long I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. Romans 11, verse 1. So I ask. So he sums all this up and he says, I ask then, has God rejected Israel? He's talking about Israel. Has God rejected his people Israel? By no means. I mean, that's about as blunt. No way. Or Dave language. Heck no. You know, for I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He's given you his ethnic background there. God has not rejected his people whom he foreloved. In other words, he loved them beforehand. Why would he reject them? He loved them to begin with. He didn't love them because they obeyed. He loved them, period. So, of course, he hasn't rejected them. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? What he's saying is Elijah thought he's the only believer left. But there were others. You can go read the story in your own time. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant of Israel chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's not by the basics of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He's saying, so they're chosen by God. It's not because of anything they're doing. It's because God chose to keep this people of Israel, this small remnant of Israel, to himself. 
Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking nationally. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So what he's saying is there is an elect remnant within Israel, but there is a whole rest of them as a nation that were hardened, closed off. And he's carrying this remnant through. So verse 11, almost done. So I ask, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble just to fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Amen. But so as to make Israel jealous. Everybody puts a period there. There's a comma there. You know, not really, but in the English language there is. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Which means they're going to be included in this thing again. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. See, what it, see how he clearly just changed direction? That tells you without a doubt that what he's been talking to, who he's been talking to are Jews. And he's been talking about their heritage and their relationship with the Lord. And now he's changing and he's speaking to the Gentiles. And we'll do this really fast. He says, Inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So he's clearly still focused on them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Even though they appear to be dead and gone, they will be alive again. When they are included. Verse 24. If you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, which is the kingdom promises of God, how much more will these, the natural branches, that's the Israelites, the ones that had those promises, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening is partial, partial, because there is a small remnant that still believes. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Not all Israel for all time. All Israel in that generation, will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. What's that a reference to? The Deliverer will come? Banish ungodliness? Huh? The Messiah is talking about the second coming there. So, yes, the unpardonable sin, as I see it, is the national rejection, the national rejection of Jesus by Israel, and they are... That generation is cut off. But what God has made a promise of is Israel as a people is not because he's carrying this promise through. If an Israelite becomes a believer today, are they part of the church? Absolutely. One hundred percent. Yes, they are an Israelite part of the church. I'm an Irish part of the church. You know what I mean? But as a nation, there's something unique to them. The church is not a nation. We are nations that are in the body of Christ. But as a nation, there is still a plan for them. We've talked about that in great detail. So what does this have to do with us? How do I apply this to my life? Maybe we need to stop trying to ask that question. And just ask, what, do you, what does this tell you about God? At least in this case. He's long-suffering, all right. Not willing that any should perish. What else does it tell you about him? 
Huh? He's sovereign. That's huge. I was going to say, that's, that's huge, good and, good and bad, maybe. I don't know if bad's the right word, but, you know, yeah. He hardens and softens, yeah. He keeps his covenants. And he does it all. And I'll tell you something else. At some point, just like any father, you, you push it to the limit. At some point, man, I hate saying that, but it's true, you know. Um. There's a lot we could say. There's a lot we could pull out of that, but let me stop at that and, and pray over it. And again, um, I will be fair and just and say, if you look up ten commentaries, you'll find six different versions of what they think that last name of the Holy Spirit means. But that's where I sit and why I sit there.